Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You may be seated. Why Trinity Sunday? I really do think that's a fair question, because most of our feasts revolving around God involve something he did. And yet today, Trinity Sunday focuses on the triune God himself. Trinity Sunday is the finale to all the preceding feasts and festivals, in which we call the festival half of the church year. And today shows us that all three persons contributed to and shared in the work of redemption. And this feast reminds us that every Sunday is about the Holy Trinity and the Holy Trinity's work of redemption. If you just consider for a moment, the Father began his work of creation on a Sunday. The Son rose again, again on a Sunday. And the Spirit descended on a Sunday that we just celebrated last week. Every Sunday reminds us of these great works of God. I think in some ways this Sunday helps bring all of that together. Consider as well that the life of a Christian begins and ends in the name of the Blessed Trinity. Because your life in the triune God begins in baptism. Your baptism is completed and brought to the fullness of its meaning at your death. I think all of this comes together beautifully in our Gospel reading from John chapter 3. First, let's consider who Nicodemus is and why he is coming to Jesus. Now we're told that Nicodemus is a Pharisee. And as we see throughout John 3, he's just as confused as the rest of the Pharisees about the true nature of salvation. We're told he's a ruler of the Jews, that he's a member of the religious council, the Sanhedrin. That's why he comes at night. He doesn't want his friends, his co-workers, if you will, to know that he's going to see Jesus. Now he does acknowledge that Jesus comes from God. It's also quite clear that he doesn't fully get it yet. He does not know that Jesus is fully God and fully man, as we just confessed, that Jesus is the Messiah. So how did, Jesus, how did Nicodemus end up coming to Jesus at night? Well, it seems he's interested in hearing about salvation, about righteousness, and what Jesus has been saying about those things. It's possible that Nicodemus heard Jesus preach and teach on various occasions. Or perhaps he heard through others. And what did he hear? That Jesus is not directing people back to the law. He's not directing them back to the traditions of the elders. Instead, he's having them look to him alone for salvation. Not according to their works or through the law, but by faith in him alone. I think it's important that we understand the passage in this context. That what we have in this discussion, in this debate, is a debate about two kinds of righteousness. The righteousness of the flesh, that is, the righteousness of works, versus the righteousness of the Spirit that Jesus gives freely. Now Nicodemus knows the righteousness of the flesh. That's what the Pharisees have taught him. The teaching of Jesus has him confused. His teaching is not like the Pharisees. So Nicodemus sneaks out in the middle of the night, goes to Jesus to learn more from him. Now Jesus, of course, he knows why Nicodemus is coming to him, and he knows exactly what he needs to hear. So Jesus doesn't waste any time. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. But no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus is telling him, Look, if you came to me because you want to know about salvation, if you want to know about 
justification, how to be forgiven, how to be righteous in God's sight, then I'm going to tell you, you must be born again. You must be born from above. The works of the law will not and cannot deliver you. They cannot save you. They cannot bring about your justification. And with these words, Jesus destroys and condemns all that Nicodemus had learned and been taught about salvation from the Pharisees. Quite frankly, Jesus destroys and condemns every other religion outside of Christianity with these words. Because it's only biblical Christianity. It's only the true faith that teaches salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. Every other religion teaches it with some kind of works, regardless of what those works look like. Jesus says, if you're not born again, if you're not born from above, you cannot even see the kingdom of God. You will not catch a glimpse of it. And to see throughout John's gospel means to believe and then to actually participate in what one believes. And so that here in this context, he's telling Nicodemus and us that unless anyone is born again, they cannot and will not understand who Jesus is and what he's come to do. That is, they will not and cannot be saved. So the question must be raised, why must one be born again? Why do you have to be born again, born from above? The sinful birth of the cursed heirs of Adam incurs God's wrath, death, and damnation. Whatever is born in the flesh is nothing but flesh. It's infected, it's poisoned, it's stained with sin. And so in another great baptism hymn we have, we sing, You were before your day of birth, indeed from your conception, condemned and lost with all the earth, none good without exception, turned inward from the highest good. You constantly denied him. So you must be born again. You must be born from above. You must become a new person, a new creation. And that's not something Nicodemus or you or anyone can bring about through their own works or efforts. It's only something God can do for you through the gospel. So with the opening words, Jesus calls Nicodemus and us to repentance. And Nicodemus doesn't like this one bit. In fact, he's a bit baffled. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Notice Nicodemus is relying on his human wisdom. He's trying to grasp his human reason, and he's lost. But I think we should be clear. I don't think the real issue for Nicodemus is the biology of it all. I think there's a bigger issue at play for Nicodemus. You see, he's a Jew. He's a child of Abraham. He sees no reason why he should have to be born again or born from above. He sees no reason why he should have to become a new person. He believes he's righteous in and of himself to what the Pharisees have taught him. Why should he, of all people, have to be born again? But how many people today have a similar attitude? How many people don't think they need to repent? How many people think there's no need to be born again, to be born from above, to become a new creation? In fact, does not our culture force down your throat every day that you are fine just the way you are, you don't need to change a thing? How many people that even claim the name Christian believe that deep down they're a good person and that because they're a good person, God's going to save them no matter what? Sometimes, even those who have the name Christian have their confidence not in Christ or the gospel, but in the fact that their parents are Christians, or that they were confirmed, and they went to church when they were kids, or to flip that around, parents think, 
Well, my kids went to church when they were little. They were confirmed, even though there's no evidence of any faith today. Maybe they attend church even weekly. But their hope is still in their own good works and not in Christ. Don't forget, Nicodemus was in church all the time. And yet he did not have faith in the Messiah who alone was his salvation. So we shouldn't look at this and think, man, Nicodemus and the Jews were really messed up. They had all these wrong views. They did. But we can very easily have that same attitude. It's all around us. And it's a constant temptation for your flesh to think that you somehow have earned it. At the end of the day, if God's keeping score, you're at least just going to nudge out those really wicked people and you'll be saved by your works. And when we think that way, we have to repent. Jesus answered most assuredly, if you remember a couple weeks ago, Amen, Amen. I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Jesus says, look, Nicodemus, everyone must be baptized. That is, baptism is necessary for salvation. In essence, he says, look, quit messing around with these silly questions and arguments. Get baptized. And we have to remember, when we're talking about baptism, we cannot separate the water and the spirit. A lot of people look at this passage, and they want to separate those two things as if they're different. But remember, baptism is the water plus the word of God. Where you have the word of God, you have the spirit of God. So in baptism, you have God's word and the promise of the spirit of God present in the water. There is not a separate baptism for the Christian. There's not a separate baptism by the spirit that you get at some later time. It all happens in your baptism with water and the words. So that being baptized in the triune name is to be born of the water and the spirits. Because this is God's work. This is God's work for you. When you've been baptized, you enter the kingdom of God. And that kingdom is the reign of God. And that kingdom is revealed in Jesus crucified. As we heard John say, John the Baptist earlier, the Lamb of God who takes away the very sin of the worlds. Who in his perfect humility of his passion demonstrates himself to be the Son of God. So that to see, to enter the kingdom of God is to see Jesus for who he is and to see Jesus as the one who has accomplished your salvation on your behalf. Jesus warns, he says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. If you've been born from sinful flesh, which all of you have been, all of us have been, then all your sinful flesh can produce is more sinful flesh. That's it. That's all it can do. The Bible is absolutely clear. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so everyone who is born of sinful flesh is utterly incapable of saving themselves. Their sinful flesh cannot produce that salvation. The Holy Spirit, though, gives you the birth from above. It's the Holy Spirit that makes you a new man, that makes you a new creation, that causes you to be born again. And he does this through your baptism. I mean, we just witnessed this mystery and miracle with the baptism of Branson. We didn't see it with our eyes, we heard it with our ears. The promises God made to him and how God caused him at that moment to be born again and even gave him the faith to receive those gifts given in his baptism. And yet, and this, for me, just two things, breaks my heart and makes me very angry. Even in our own school, I meet children all the time who are quite old, fifth, sixth grade and above, who have not been baptized. 
And their churches, I think the reason for this is, it's more than that they don't have an understanding of baptism. I mean, give me a break. You're going to tell me a fifth and sixth grader can't understand baptism? It's more than that. It's that they're looking in all the wrong places for the Spirit of God. They're not looking in God's Word and Sacrament. They're not looking where God has promised to be for them and their salvation. And so they delay the one thing that actually gives the Spirit of God to them. Jesus continued, The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the spirits. These words are directed right at Nicodemus and us, based on what we've just heard from Jesus. No one can hope to produce a new birth. You can't control it any more than you can control the wind. We just heard the wonderful words of the spirit of life. And now Jesus is saying, look, God has a great deal of freedom. He is free in his work of mercy and grace. God creates freely when and where it pleases him. Because of his grace alone, through his word and baptism. And all of it's received by faith alone. Now this pushes Nicodemus over the edge. He says, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you a teacher of Israel? Do not know these things. Most assuredly I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Jesus says, wait a minute, you're the teacher of Israel and you don't know the Old Testament? You don't know the passages in Isaiah and Ezekiel that literally say that the new heart comes from water through baptism? Haven't you read all the glorious passages in the Old Testament where God's people are saved through water? Like Noah and the floods, the crossing of the Red Sea. How have you missed all these things? Don't you know, as later the author of Hebrews will make quite clear, that all these different washings in the Old Testament are called baptisms. Have you not read how Abraham and all the rest of the Old Testament saints were saved by grace alone through faith alone in the Messiah? How is it possible that you've read it and not seen these things? It's interesting, as Jesus is saying this, he doesn't say I, he says we, we speak. Our witness. So you remember, when Jesus is baptized just a few chapters earlier, what did we have take place? At the baptism of Jesus, the Father spoke clearly. And the Spirit descended and came down in the form of a dove. Jesus is saying the triune God has made this evidence. As was witnessed at my own baptism. As we just heard in the flood prayer, his baptism cleansed all waters. So they'd all be a life-giving water when added to the word of God. Scriptures themselves bear witness to what Jesus says and what he's done. And Jesus is telling him and us, look, if you can't understand, if you don't believe what's been put before you in the shadows, in the forms of the Old Testament, the earthly things, if you will, how in the world can you believe the heavenly things? The New Testament reality that Jesus is speaking of. Especially those things that center around his person and work and how he saves us. And then Jesus gets to the next part, which is really telling us, how is it that baptism can do these things? How is it that baptism saves? Well, it's because Jesus has suffered and died. Jesus continues, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The new birth, seeing the kingdom, receiving through the waters of baptism takes place because Jesus died and rose again. 
The new birth that comes by water and the Spirit comes because Jesus has poured it out upon us freely because of his death and resurrection for you on your behalf. Indeed, his lifting up on the cross is the key to understanding all Scripture. As I mentioned at the beginning of the service, what does Isaiah see? He sees the Lord high and lifted up. He sees Jesus enthroned. And where is Jesus enthroned in John's Gospel? He's enthroned on the cross. That is where he's seen clearly to be the king of glory. It is necessary that he be lifted up on the cross just as a snake had to be lifted up on the cross for the healing of the people. So too the Son of Man must be lifted up for the salvation of the world, even for your own salvation. Because the only way you get to escape the poison of your sin, the only way you are freed and rescued and healed, is to look in faith to the crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ, who was lifted up on the cross for you. There's no other remedy for the poison of sin. You won't find it anywhere else. Christ had to bear your sin on the cross and suffer death in your place so that he could defeat the evil serpent, Satan. And because of this, you have the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. You have true healing and salvation. But where do you get it? Jesus says you get it through the word and the water. You get it as the Spirit comes to you through holy baptism and makes you his own. That's when eternal life begins for you. The benefits that Christ won for you on the cross are poured onto your head in baptism and they're poured down into your mouths with his holy blood at the table. Jesus gives that which he earned through his appointed means. And that brings us to one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture. If anyone knows a Bible verse, they know usually at least this one. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, Whoever believed in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. In what way did God love the world? If you want to know God's love for the world, how do you know that he did it? Where do you look? What does it look like? Jesus says only in this way. He gave his only begotten Son for the salvation of the world. God did not send his Son and his incarnation, in his first advent, to condemn the world. That was not his primary purpose in coming. He came to redeem the world, to save and rescue the world. That is why he came. Think about how the Trinity is at play here. The Son was sent by the Father, so he could suffer and die in your place for your sins. And then the Son sends the Holy Spirit through his means, so that you may receive what he died to win for you. So that his immense love for you is shown clearly on the cross. He didn't send snakes to punish you. Instead, he sent his son to die for you. That too, then, is why we exist here as a church. So we can proclaim this good news week in and week out. So that we can baptize people to make them Christians and then feed them Christ's body and blood that they may stay Christians. Trinity Sunday, I believe, from beginning to end, is all about your redemption. Because the Father gave the Son as a perfect gift for you. The Son offered himself up for you. And the Son sends his Spirit to bring you the gifts of the crucifixion. All out of God's immense love for you. There is no other God. Not one. Besides the triune God that we have worshipped and confessed here this morning. And so you were baptized in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Triune God himself has marked you as his own. He's put his name upon you called you his child and saved you. 
All the blessings that God has for you are revealed in that holy name. So every Sunday we confess the salvation accomplished for us and applied to us by the blessed Trinity. Amen. The peace of God passes on your sinning. Guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.